So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light and time and day and night. He created land and water, plants and animals. He created man and woman and put his very image in them so that they would reflect to the world his character, his nature, and his goodness. And as the story goes, he looked on everything that he created and he called it good. He even said it was very good. You see, God created not out of necessity, but out of love, out of an overflow of his love so that he could share his goodness and his life and his love with all of creation. And man and woman enjoyed this very special relationship with God as his children. And they were given this purpose and meaning and this task to cultivate the earth, to go and spread, uh, be fruitful and multiply and spread his goodness and his love all over the earth. And through it all, he gave them one prohibition. And he said it like this. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So why did God give them this prohibition? Why did God give them this rule? You see, this tree represented a daily decision for them. Are we going to trust God and rely on his provision and plan? Or are we going to reject God and go our own way? You see, God warned them that the consequences of going their own way would be this. And he said it, for in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And so we know how the story goes, right? This good world didn't stay good for very long. And our first parents decided that they would rather find their joy in their life outside of God. And eventually they did eat from that tree. And that decision changed the world as we know it. At that moment, death entered into the world. Now, what I have always found interesting is that in the moment that they ate that fruit, they didn't kill over and die, right? A lightning bolt didn't blast out of the sky and obliterate them, did it? But surely, death began to unravel the very fabric of creation, like a loose thread on your shirt, right? You see it, and you, and you start to pull it, right? You're not supposed to do that, by the way. You're supposed to cut it off, right? But if you start pulling that thread, what happens? The seam begins to come undone. And that's what happened. When death entered into the world, it started to unravel the very fabric of his creation, That day, suffering entered our world as the curse of sin, and it spread through like a disease and infected everything. And so now every form of loss, every pain, every form of suffering is not only a reminder of the death that is coming for us all one day, but every suffering that we go through is actually like this miniature version of death, a picture of what's to come. We experience these miniature forms of suffering all the time. That's essentially what suffering is. It's the removal of good things. It's the removal of life and order and peace. And that what death does, it it removes what was never meant to be removed. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at suffering in its various forms. Because you see, suffering is the great equalizer. It is indiscriminate against gender and geography, wealth and poverty, age, ethnicity, and race. It doesn't matter who you are. Live long enough, and guess what? You will experience some form of suffering. And not only do we all face suffering to some degree or another, at some point, every one of us comes face to face with our own mortality. Literally, every one out of one people will die. It's a staggering statistic. It's something you cannot overcome on your own. 
And today in Mark's gospel, we're going to come to a really large chunk of scripture that deals with Jesus' comprehensive power over suffering, even power over death. Starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 35, we're going to look at four miracles of Jesus as he confronts disaster, demons, disease, and death. And we're going to see how in each one of these, Jesus reverses the effects of, curse, of the curse, even the curse of death. You see, Jesus takes what is broken and he makes it whole again. Jesus, in doing so, will give us a glimpse of the world that is to come, the world as it should be. And Jesus is going to take suffering head on and show how he has the power not only to confront suffering and use it to transform his people, but that he's able to overcome it as well. So let's dive into our text in Mark 4:35 with our first form of suffering in disaster. See, Jeremy preached last week, Jesus doing this extended teaching on the kingdom, and Jesus is standing in a boat. And when uh, Mark picks back up in the story, uh, they stay in that same boat, and Jesus says, hey, it's time to go across uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And now let's pick it up in verse um, 37. Here's what Mark says. And a great, so they're in the boat, right, Sea of Galilee, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Suffering in the form of natural disaster is especially relevant given our uh, hurricane season that we just went through this year. Now here's something you need to know about the Sea of Galilee, okay? The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And just 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet high. So what you have here within 30 miles is 10,000 feet high all the way down to below sea level. What's my point? The point is there's this constant clashing of cold air from the mountains and the warm air coming up from the Sea of Galilee. And it doesn't take a meteorologist to know that when you have that constant clashing of, of warm system and cold systems, you're going to have storms and squalls. The Sea of Galilee today is still notorious for these storms that will just pop up at a moment's notice. And we looked at this before that four of our disciples are professional fishermen. And not only are they professionals, but this is their home lake. They have grown up fishing on this very sea. And we see that they're terrified. So what that tells us is that this storm must have been a particularly nasty one. And these experienced sailors are fearful for their life. Disaster strikes, and just like anybody, they're confronted with their very own mortality. Suffering does that to us, doesn't it? It brings us face to face with our own frailty and smallness. When it comes to nature, we are helpless. Now, what's Jesus doing in this time? He's up at the front of the boat sleeping. Did you know, I found this interesting. This is the only place in the Gospels where we ever hear about Jesus sleeping. And he's doing it in the midst of essentially a hurricane on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are panicked, but Jesus is at peace. Look what happens next in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
So the story goes, Jesus wakes up, and his first act is to rebuke the sea and the waves. And there was great calm. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried just to rebuke a storm outside? How'd that go for you? Did it even like, it just slapped you right in the face, didn't it? Jesus rebukes the wind and the seas, and immediately it's calm. Not just like the storm subsided, but all the momentum and the tossing and the turning of the waves, it goes like glass, and it's calm. You see, you bend around a storm, right? You are at its mercy. It doesn't bow to you. You bow to it. But here, the storm obeys the voice of its creator. The same voice that called water into very existence. And the one who created the seas and the waves and all the mechanisms that create the storm, he told it to be still. He muzzled the storm with a simple word. There's no wand. There's no incantation. There's no calling on the gods of the sea and the wind and the waves. He simply says, be still. And it was. Jesus brings the chaos back into order and does what only God can do. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus can still the storm, why doesn't he just prevent it from happening in the very first place, right? Like, why go through all of this show? They get on the boat, he could say, you know what, wind, waves, we're not doing it today, right? Cold storm, you know, cold front, warm front, not happening today. I want to get to the other side. I'm exhausted. I want a nap. Let's get over there. Why doesn't he just prevent it? And maybe you're wondering, when you think about the own, your own suffering in your life, have you ever wondered if God was indifferent to your suffering and hardship? Why has he allowed you to go through such hard times? Have you ever wondered if Jesus was sleeping in the boat while you were enduring the wind and the waves? Just like with his disciples, my brothers and my sisters, Jesus is with you. You are not out on the sea alone. What we find here is that this miracle was for the disciples. It was so that they could grow and trust in their understanding of Jesus. You see, for the disciples, they're going to face much more suffering in the coming years. Wind and waves will seem like nothing compared to the suffering and the trials and the temptation and the persecution of the Roman Empire. You see, they need to learn that following Jesus doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. And if anyone has ever told you that, let me be the first to say, I am so sorry. Charlatans lie to people all the time and say that if you'll just follow Jesus, everything will turn around in your life. You'll never suffer. And if you do, it must be something wrong with you. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. These guys are as close to Jesus as you can get and they are enduring the wind and the storm. They need to learn that following Jesus doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. Jesus needs them to learn that we will go through the storm, but he is with us in the midst of it, and he will be very present in the midst of your storm. You see, we find that Jesus is much more interested in their formation and their character and who they are as his disciples than their comfort. You see, we need transformation, not simply safe passage from point A to point B. Jesus' words to them when he says, why do you not have faith? It's not meant to demean them. It's actually meant to stir up in them more faith. 
He is encouraging their growth, an increase in trust and dependence on him. And he knows. This is why I find great comfort, because the disciples, they're so close to Jesus. Look, think about all they've seen so far, and yet they are still works in progress, which means, hear me, it is okay for us to be works in progress as well. He meets us right where we are, and he is determined to see their faith in him increase as they fix their eyes on Jesus, not on the storm. Storm calms. They start rowing to their destination, and they look at each other and like, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Their question must be ours this morning as well. Who is this man? As the storms of life come our way, we'll be tempted to focus on all of the circumstances around us, the wind and the waves, and I'm not belittling them. Those are hard. But Jesus is calling us to fix our focus on him. Like he was with the disciples, Jesus is with you. He has not left you to perish alone. Fix your eyes on him. Who Jesus is lays a claim on who we will become. Let me say that again. Who Jesus is lays a claim on who we will become. Here's what I mean. You can be sure that no storm comes your way that is not meant for your transformation. Jesus is good. He is not out to get you. He is not out to hurt you. He has this power to overcome the storms and seas in your life. But if he sees fit that we go through it, it's for our good. And at the proper time, he will calm the seas and the storm. The king has power over disaster and uses it to accomplish the work of increasing their faith. Let's keep moving. We've got a lot of text today. Let's see the king's power over demons. Chapter 5, as we move on, we see that they get across the lake, and as they get off the boat, they're immediately confronted by a man who has a storm raging inside of him. We quickly learn that this man is possessed by a demon. Okay, right away, all kinds of thoughts are going through your mind right now. Did you just say demon? Uh Uh-oh, okay. Some of you have been like, when... Notice that we've kind of skipped over some of those things and going, when are you going to talk about it, preacher? When are we going to talk about the demons? You, I've noticed that you just skipped over those passages. Okay, I can't say everything about everything every time, every Sunday, okay? Here, if you're like excited about demonology and what's going on, here we go. Now, this is an area of a lot of confusion for people, right? Some of us just go, demons, not doing it. I just don't even believe in them. Some of us think there's a demon under every flat tire and under every stump toe. I'm like, oh, that must have been a demon, okay? Truth is somewhere in the middle between those two things, okay? The New Testament is very clear that there were cases of demonic possession, and Jesus and his disciples encountered them often, okay? Jesus liberated afflicted individuals all throughout the New Testament. He commanded demons to flee, and they obeyed him. And as we go on throughout the, 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 uh, the book of Acts, we see the apostles confront demons as well. And they're exercised and uh, they confront powers of evil and darkness all throughout their ministry as well. Now here's the deal. When you read these stories in the New Testament, it's nothing like the movies. Like if you're thinking Poltergeist, the Exorcist, that's not how uh, these New Testament uh, apostles confront uh, demons and the evil spirits. It's usually like lackluster, no fanfare. It's prayer and calling upon the name of Jesus and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. You see, 
The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And at the end of the day, it's the name of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, and his power through the gospel that gives us power over the evil forces in our world. The reality is that we are actually engaged in the spiritual warfare every minute of every day, whether we recognize it or not. It's happening all around us, things seen and unseen. But, that, that, but, but, but for believers, there's nothing to fear about demons. There's nothing the demons fear or hate more than evangelism and missions as the gospel is pushing back against the darkness. And there's absolutely no New Testament evidence that a believer in Christ can be possessed by a demon. We could be tempted, we could be tormented, yes, but never possessed. Once we are united and joined to Jesus by faith, we're given the power of the indwelling, the power of the Holy Spirit as he indwells in us. And so in one sense, there's no room for anybody else. The Spirit has filled us and filled us um, to the uttermost. It's like the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, should we respect the, the power and the forces of, of the devil? Yes, but we should never fear them. And so you don't need some rite of exorcism, only the name of Jesus. Every believer is armed with the full promise of the gospel that we are united by faith and dwelt by the Spirit, and because of that, we are secure. That's like a short, as short as I can be on that today. If you've got questions about that, I'd love to talk with you more afterwards. Maybe we can set up some time. I know that some people, this is a real fear, and I'd love to enter into that with you. Uh, we can walk through passages of Scripture like Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Uh, if you're taking notes, that's a great one to write down um, as it talks about what, uh, how we arm ourselves in uh, spiritual warfare, okay? Um, if you want to get together sometime, shoot me an email. I'd love to sit down and we can talk about that, okay? So now, picking back up in our story, they meet this man who is possessed by a demon, and he's living in a cemetery, and people have tried to bind him with shackles to subdue him, okay? This man was strong. Um, he was hurting others, and so they want to they bind him, okay? But no chains could hold him, and no one had strength to subdue him anymore, and left, so they leave him to die in the seminary, and he's been cutting himself against the stones. And to add insult to injury, he's naked. Okay, so picture this man coming to Jesus, cut up, naked, and possessed by a demon. He's essentially been left for dead, to live among the dead until he dies. You talk about suffering and torment. And in desperation, this man falls before Jesus. Now let's pick it up in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, this is Jesus, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the demon replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The demons don't even let the man speak. As Jesus confronts and the demons take over, and they instantly recognize Jesus. Now don't miss the irony here. 
The very people, as we've looked at, that Jesus has come to save have, have uh, 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 not seen him for who he is. And instantly the demons see him and they recognize exactly who he is. They know that this is Jesus, son of the most high God. And they know that Jesus has power to torment them and to do with him as he pleases. And Jesus engages the demon and says, what's your name? The demon replies, my name is Legion. Now, for many of you who don't know, that's a Roman military term. This is, we're talking about um, a set of troops anywhere between 4,000 to 6,000 troops. This guy doesn't have a demon. He's got a whole army of demons inside of him. The demons know that they're going to have to leave this man because Jesus told them, you got to go. And so they start kind of this little negotiation. Well, hey, don't just cast us into oblivion. Maybe just send us into the pigs over there. So Jesus grants their request, and they leave the man, and they enter in to the herd of pigs, numbering 2,000. Now you can imagine, demons go inside the pigs. You think the pigs are just okay with it? No. They go into a frenzy, and they run down a steep, a steep bank into the sea and drown. Imagine the guys who were sitting there tending to those pigs, right? All of a sudden, things just got crazy, Right? The herdsmen go tell people in the city, and a crowd find, uh, comes down to figure out what's been going on. After the people hear what's happened, they look at Jesus, and they look at the floating bacon in the sea, and they say, Jesus, it's time for you to go, right? Now realize, 2,000 pigs have just been lost, okay? I did some looking into the cost of pigs. Like, what would that have cost them that day? If you were to uh, account for inflation and and uh, modern-day uh, uh, expenses, we're talking about at least half a million dollars all the way up to about a million dollars just got drowned in the sea. No more baby back ribs, man. Gone. But at the end of the day, these people are more concerned about the loss of property than the healing and the redemption of their countrymen, right? Right? They've said, man, this, everybody knows this guy, right? Everybody knows that he's been on the, on the fritz, on the outs, and... And there's something different about this man. And yet all they care about is the floating bacon. Look with me in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man, now clothed, in his right mind, free for the first time and who knows how long, is eager to leave this place behind. I mean, can you blame him? Wouldn't you want to just leave that place behind? All it is is filled of awful memories of the suffering and the torment you've experienced. But Jesus tells him to go and live among the very people who left him for dead, who chained him up among the tombs in the cemetery. So why does Jesus refuse this man? I mean, are they out of room on the boat? Boats back then would hold about 25, 28 people. There's only 13 on there. They got plenty of room. You see, this man has experienced hell. And now in this meeting with Jesus, he's experienced heaven. He's given new life and he's been set free. Clearly, his friends and family and his countrymen didn't value Jesus over the loss of the pigs. And so Jesus sends him back to them. For how else will they know 
How else would they know about the power of Jesus to transform their life if someone doesn't stay to point them to Jesus? You see, this opportunity to bring good news and light to his countrymen is uniquely his. People will not be able to refute the before and after, right? Clearly, they've seen something different and change in this man's life. He is a walking and breathing example of the power of Jesus. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the man and want him on the team. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus loves him. He's on the team. But his assignment is to go back to his countrymen. His assignment is to stay and be a witness of the love and the power of Jesus Christ to his hometown. Family, your life is your greatest tool of evangelism. You are a walking picture of good news. You see, a lot of times people talk about, but I don't know. I don't have all the answers. This is a great, you don't have to have, you think this guy had answers? He's newly converted. He's newly following you. He's got no answers. Jesus says, go and tell them what's happened. He doesn't have to have all the answers and all the knowledge. He doesn't have to be well-versed in apologetics and arguments. He says, you've got your greatest tool, your transformed and changed life. You have the testimony of what God in Christ has done for you. We see that Jesus has power over the demons, and he's freed this man from suffering. But the point of the passage is not to focus on what's been exercised out of this man, but it's been what's worked in this man, the mercy and the love of God that has changed this man's life, that Jesus has fought for him and delivered him. And this is a picture of what Jesus has done for all of us. He's defeated death on our behalf. He has freed us all from the sin that has kept us bound and living among the tombs. Jesus himself was wounded and cut so that we don't have to cut ourselves in torment. He's given us new life, and now we get to tell others of all the things he has done for us. So, so far we've seen Jesus has power over disasters. He has power over demons. Now let's look at this last section of scripture to see how Jesus has power over disease and death. Pick up with me in verse um, 21 of chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So we see that Jesus goes all the way back to the other side of the lake, right where they left from, and crowds gather again. And out of the crowds, we see this man named Jairus step out, and he makes his way through the crowd to Jesus. Now, he's a leader in the synagogue. And so far, if you've been tracking with us, these guys aren't excited about Jesus. In fact, they've been plotting how to kill Jesus. But Jairus is desperate, right? His daughter is sick and at death's door. And when it's your kid, you're willing to do anything to help them. And so he comes to Jesus, and he falls at his feet in humility. And even in his desperate state, his posture in coming to Jesus shows that he has some measure of faith that Jesus can do a miracle, that Jesus can turn it around, and that Jesus can save his daughter. And Jairus asks him and begs him 
And Jesus says, let's go. And so Jesus picks up with Jairus and they start walking towards his house. Now look with me at verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now very quickly, we're introduced to another character. Remember how a couple weeks ago I talked about Mark's literary sandwiches, how he likes to start one story, insert a story, and then he picks up the other story? And actually the best way to understand all of it is to look at it together. That's what's going on here. And so we see this other character, and this woman has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And under Mosaic law, a woman during menstruation was unclean until it stopped. But guess what? For this woman, it hadn't stopped for 12 years. So what are the implications? She has been spiritually cut off from God, unable to go to the temple, unable to go to Jerusalem, unable to participate in the holy days because she's ceremonially unclean. Until this woman is healed and cleansed, she's cut off from the very presence of God. And so doctor after doctor, remedy after remedy, she has tried everything, but nothing has worked. And now all her resources are depleted. And it says <laughs> nothing's gotten better. Her condition has actually gotten worse. What we see here is her suffering is a picture of death. Think about it. As the blood is flowing out of her, it's like her very life is coming out of her, and she's cut off from God. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind them and in the crowd and touched his garments, for she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. See, after 12 years, she's desperate. She hears Jesus is passing by, so she doesn't care anymore. She risks embarrassment she risks contaminating others. She risks being further ridiculed and ostracized, but she simply doesn't care. She knows she's got to get to Jesus. It's likely she's heard rumors about Jesus, that he's healed the unclean and even touched him. And when he did, Jesus didn't become unclean. Rather, it was the opposite. Everyone he touched became clean. What this meant was that the normal flow where uncleanness was transferred from one person to another was somehow in Jesus reversed. It was like his cleanness, his wholeness flowed from him to those who were unclean and unwhole. Think about it this way. Normally, death would spread and overwhelm life. But with Jesus, death is not a problem. For Jesus Death was not drawn into him. Uncleanness did not spread to him. With Jesus, his life swallowed up death. And so she reaches out. Look at verse 29. And immediately, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you do see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, it's one of my favorite words in the whole Bible, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She touches his garment, and immediately she's healed. 
Now, when you've been bleeding for 12 years, you know the moment you're healed, don't you? Jesus knew power had gone out for him. And so he asked, who touched me? The disciples are like, uh, who hasn't touched you, right? You're crowded by all these people, yet you say, who's touched you? Now think about it. They've stopped. Jairus has probably walked a couple steps ahead, and he's like, no, what, what are you doing? Why are we stopping? Like, urgency is of the, of the mat, right? We've got to get to my daughter. Her life is hanging by the thread. You can just imagine him looking at Jesus saying, like, we got to go. There's no time for interruptions. Jesus, please, my daughter. The delay causes the woman to step forward. Another step of faith, right? The first step was coming to touch Jesus. Now she's got to come forward. I love that her faith is mixed with fear and trembling. All throughout the Bible, I, I say this every time, but our, our faith doesn't have to be perfect. It's going to be a mix of fear and faith. Because see, it's not the perfection of our faith that matters, but the object of the one we're putting our faith in that matters. So she comes forward. She confesses, it was me. I touched you. I've been healed. And Jesus looks at her, and he sees her, and he hears her, and he heals her, and he calls her daughter. One of my favorite things about Jesus is he's interruptible. I hate it when people interrupt me. I can't stand it. It drives me bonkers. I don't know if you're like me. But Jesus was willing, always willing to be interrupted. He sees her and he calms her fear. And he says, daughter, I don't reject you. I love you. Go in peace. Be whole. You think she received more than physical healing in that moment? Her soul had ached for years. And in a word, Jesus is able to speak peace back into her life. Daughter, your faith has made you well. You see, this woman needed her faith affirmed. She needed her head lifted high to know that she was a daughter. She needed to know that she was valued and that she mattered to Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just interested in transactional encounters with you. He's interested in relationship. He could have kept going, knowing he healed her. He could have kept going, get on his way. But he wanted her, not just for her healing to be made whole, but for her whole self to be made whole. Look with me at verse 35. While he was still speaking to this woman, there came one from the ruler's house who said, Chiris, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So it's at this point a messenger shows up and says, it's too late. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. Imagine how Jairus feels in that moment, right? His last bit of hope. And they stuck around having some conversation. It's not that he doesn't care about the woman. It's just that he cares so deeply for his daughter. Why did we stop? Why didn't we hurry? And Jesus looks at Jairus, and he calls him to a deeper faith. He wants to show him that he's more than just a simple miracle worker. He has the power to reverse the curse and fight our greatest enemy. 
Now back at Jairus' house, people have already begun the grieving process. There's mourning and all kinds of commotion. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they walk right into that house, into the little girl's room. Look with me at verse 30, uh, 41. Taking her by the hand, this is the little girl, cold, room temperature, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, or Jairus, watches as the sting of death is reversed. And his little girl gets up and begins to walk. Jesus heals that little girl and asks that food would be brought to her. Another instance of Jesus slowing down to have a meal with this little girl. Who is this man that even death has to obey him? On that day, Jesus took Jairus deeper than he ever wanted to go. Why? So that he could see Jesus for who he really is. And I hope you've noticed in all of these stories an escalation, right? From disaster to demons and disease, all of these are powerful and they bring untold suffering. But even combined, none of them come close to the destruction of death. It is our most formidable, most powerful enemy of the human race. And Jesus takes that little girl by the hand and he tells her to get up and rise. So what is Jesus saying here to us? He's saying this, when I have you, and I'm talking to you in this room. Jesus is saying, when I have you by the hand, even death is nothing but a good night's sleep. My power is such that when I hold you by the hand, not even death can snatch you away. Jesus is giving us a picture and a taste of his power here. Listen, can I just be real with you? I don't know all the reasons why we suffer. I have some thoughts. I know he uses it for our transformation, but I know in this room, even a room as small as this, that we've suffered hard things, that we have lost loved ones. We have gone through untold trials and suffering. And I don't know the exact details of all of those things and why God has brought you through it. But here's what I do know. God will use suffering in our lives to take us somewhere that we would never go on our own, to work in us something that could never be worked otherwise. I know that God is good. The scriptures tell me. And he never causes evil. And in fact, he weeps over suffering and torment more than we ever will. And more than that, what this passage tells me is that he is going to bring it all to an end one day. There's coming a day when like Tolkien said, all of the sad things in this life will come untrue. It's like what C.S. Lewis said at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the very last book in the last battle. Listen to what Lewis says. He's given us a picture of what's to come. Lewis says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of their real story. See, all the life in this world and all the adventures of Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. 
And now at last they were beginning chapter one of their great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. As we close, I want to remind you of what I said when we started the hope of preaching, the hope of Scripture is that our minds would be renewed and our hearts would be reformed around the truth of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that King Jesus has the power to use suffering in your life to bring about the transformation you need? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to hold your hand so that death, even death, will ultimately just be a good night's sleep? Let's live in light of those truths. What would we look like? How would we live if those anchored our soul? I'm not saying that it means every day will be easy, but I do know it will be enough for us to live. Let's live in light of these truths. Let's let it cause a deep love and trust in God as we go through life, no matter the trials we face or the suffering we endure, knowing that because God is for us, not even death can be against us. Let's pray.